This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Hi. I love this show. I love this show because we get to talk not about religion. We don't talk about what goes on on Sunday for the most part, or Friday or Saturday. Uh... But we talk about about mankind. We talk about humanity. We talk about the remarkable reality of the spirit of mankind. And that's why so many times I love talking about these subjects. But not today. Today is one of those subjects that interviewers like me often dread talking about because it's, it's like the kind of subject that comes up every so often when you have to tell a tragic story about the death of a child, when you tell a story about illness that takes someone's life, when you talk about... When you talk about Anxiety, when you talk about a lack of forgiveness, some of the things that are unresolved in our lives that are painful to talk about. And this is one of them. But as I said to our guest right before we went on the air, while it's painful, it also is potentially productive to talk about the sins of the priesthood. I'm talking about my priesthood my producer, Rosemary's Priesthood. I'm talking about Roman Catholic priests. And I'm talking about that ultimate consummate sin, and that is creating the sin of power over childhood. As as you have certainly seen, in papers, magazines, books, so so often that you think, wait, maybe this is the time it'll be resolved. Maybe this is the time when the church will be so embarrassed that individual members of the leadership will be so humiliated that something will be done that will resolve it all so that the priesthood can then be compared with the priesthood that I grew up with, Pat O'Brien, Bing Crosby. Remember those movies? Remember the Bing Crosby movies, Going My Way? And you know what? It really wasn't fiction because there were priests like that here in the United States in parishes everywhere, and there still are. Now, before I introduce you to my guest, I want to tell you just a little something about a personal experience or two or seven or 20 of mine. I went to a Catholic boys high school of several hundred and maybe a dozen boarders. My parents were traveling folks in show business. And so they were on the road constantly. And finally, when I eventually wound up going to school somewhere, it was at that boys' school, that high school, 
in Des Moines, Iowa, right in the center of the United States, so that I could be reasonably close to wherever it is that they might be performing. I lived in a building that contained offices, that contained a dining hall for the boarders and the faculty, and contained the priests' homes, their rooms, their apartments. Their apartments were down at the end of the hall. We had rooms in the hallway. For four years, I went to that school. Longest I'd ever been in any one town in my life. For four years, I was there for nine months a year, and not once did I ever hear even the suggestion of any kind of sinful activity between a priest and any student or anyone else. The closest I ever remember anyone suggesting that there was sinful activity going on was every once in a while, oh, some of the rumor mongers in a parish would say, well, Mrs. Kelly certainly does spend a great deal of time with Father Macaulay. Uh, we just would like to think it has to do with her need for extended confession. There were always those kinds of, of silly rumors that nobody paid any attention to. Then I went to college, a boys' Catholic college, and we lived in a large building where the priests lived too. Never once did I ever hear any suggestion of any kind of pedophilia. I don't even know that I knew what the word meant at that time. But now we hear about it all the time. And sometimes when we hear about the Roman Catholic Church in the news, it's only about pedophilia. And when we hear about the Vatican, we often hear only about cover-ups. And when we hear about the diocesan offices or the archdiocesan offices where the bishops live, we hear only about cover-up. So now with that whole introduction, please, let me introduce our guest. We found him in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Gary Schoner is the director of consultation and training for the Walk-In Counseling Center in the Twin Cities. And Gary, it's really wonderful of you to join us particularly on as serious a subject as that. You've heard my history now at far greater length than I intended. Talk about your experience now. Introduce yourself to our worldwide audience. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. When I was in graduate school, a group of us felt that there were people that were not getting psychological services and that we thought we should develop a volunteer program to do something about that. And so we opened the walk-in counseling center in May of 1969 to provide free no red tape services for people that might be unable to get help elsewhere, either because of fears or lack of resources, whatever. What happened is there was a group of people that came in we were not expecting. Yeah, we expected the kids on drugs. We expected the runaways. We expected the people lacking in resources. The group we didn't know about were people who said they had bad experiences getting help elsewhere. Well, at first, this was complaints about psychologists and psychiatrists, but 
pretty soon it included clergy acting in counseling roles, teachers and others. And originally it was often people complaining about sexual misconduct against adults or late adolescents. Eventually it was all ages, both genders, and it, it got to be uh, much broader. Uh, so we began providing some services to victims, sometimes in those days helping someone uh, make a complaint somewhere. Um, and unlike a lot of organizations, we didn't start looking at the clergy issues. We started looking at abuse of power in a broader sense of people in professional roles. The second thing that happened was that uh, we didn't just focus on victims of Roman Catholic priests or any particular group. It was a great variety of people, and it was also adults, children, boys and girls, men and women. So we had a much more rounded view than many people had who started in this work uh, years later even. And then by the late uh, 70s, questions came up about, well, why did he do this? What's wrong with him? What should be done? And we developed a typology of offenders and then we're asked to do some evaluations of offenders. Now we've never treated offenders, but we have done evaluations that help people do investigations and so forth. And then in the 1980s, lawsuits began to be filed of all sorts and uh, they were looking for expert witnesses. That was beyond our nonprofit function. So I couldn't really do that as part of my job, but I decided to do some of that work privately. Um, and then over the years, um, uh, all kinds of organizations have evolved, doing everything from providing support to victims to trying to hold the church accountable, all kinds of studies, all kinds of things have happened. And so our role has diminished quite a bit because there are, frankly, tons of outfits doing bits and pieces of this, including working directly with churches at developing preventive programs and better responses and whatever. So we've seen over the past 50 years the evolution also of both awareness and response. So um, it, it's it's been fortunate to have been living through this era and, and having seen what we've seen. But Gary, you heard my introduction. Was I, as a student in high school and college and years after, was I blindly naive to the existence of all this? And, and was I in a large group of other blindly naive Catholics? Well, I don't think it's quite that simple. Uh, certainly, uh, one thing for sure, uh, a bishop once asked me, how can I spot a pedophile priest? And I said, they do all the same things that a really good youth pastor does. That's the problem. Oh. They look, look a lot alike. That's number one. Number two, contrary to popular belief, many offenders do not offend frequently. They offend, feel horribly guilty, don't do anything for a long while. Uh, Thirdly, obviously, the vast majority of cases never come forward in the first place. And when they do, everybody from the victim and their family to the church doesn't want them out in the open. Uh, but one other vignette that might help you understand this, we, we've had a relationship with the um, 
uh, uh, Abbey of St. John's in Collegeville, Minnesota, where victims of clergy, among the many options, could come to us for help, no questions asked. And that arrangement even allows us to, for example, suggest that somebody as one of their options is to sue the, sue the order. Um, and um, one of the earliest calls we got when this arrangement started was from a man. He had just received a congregation saying that their priest had been credibly accused of sexual misconduct. It blew his mind. What he needed help with was processing this. He said, this guy wasn't mediocre. He was the best pastor we ever had. He was terrific. And he said, my mind is blown. I mean, this guy was memorable because he was good. And now you're telling me he had sex with kids. He said, I, I just, I can't get my head around it. And I, I spent hours trying to help him sort that and deal with it. So I, one last point on this, bear in mind that in public life, there are tons of examples of otherwise reputable people who are highly regarded in their families or in their workplace or in their community who turn out to have a dark side. That's not new. That's an old story. And it doesn't just relate to the church. So those are some of the, the challenges in figuring out what did I miss? Was there something there staring me in the face? Are those people that you were just talking about, clergy, business people, uh, the respected uh, elements of our communities that turn out to have that dark side? Are they, are they, but are they considered, Gary, are they considered psychotic? No. Well, although there is a small subgroup that, that probably are, but most are not. And uh, there are a great, great variety of psychological issues and problems. This is a fairly complicated situation. For example, there are some who abuse children, adolescents, and adults, sometimes both genders. Sometimes it's just simply kids or adults. It, it, it's, it's, it, there, isn't a, uh, there aren't simple categories. Uh, one of the reasons that people say, well, gee, you've seen thousands of these, doesn't this get old? I say, actually, no, because every case is different. There are nuances. There are things that are unique. There are things that I hadn't seen before, uh, things I'd never thought of before. So all I can say is it's complicated as hell. No matter and, what the uh, pastels may be, Gary, no matter what the subtleties are, my simple question is, why? Why do they do it? Well, um, there are tons and tons of answers. The simplest type of answer with children is that you have people that have a condition, uh, you know, we call pedophilia, where there is a interest in and, and a drive to have sexual contact with children, what many people don't realize, however, is sometimes these are feelings and thoughts that are never acted on. Other times they're acted on, but only in certain circumstances where there is uh, an opportunity presents itself that's unusual. Um, and um, then there are others who are predators who, who actively, once they start down that pathway, hunt down kids and you have um, 
uh, we've had cases where a priest will uh, will be interviewing a priest. He'll say, "Oh yeah, that guy was a real chicken hawk." I could see that right away. Yeah, saying chicken hawk. Yeah, it means someone who's hunting for children, and somebody else who has the same issue and problem uh, sometimes can spot them long ahead of someone like myself. And uh, and there are horrible instances where they pass kids around. I mean, the extreme cases. Probably the worst case I've ever seen in North America is uh, the Mount Cashel orphanage case in Newfoundland, where both sexual and physical abuse was visited on various brothers from the uh, the um, uh, Irish Catholic Christian brothers who ran orphanages and all kinds of social supports in uh, northeastern Canada and. Um, Eventually, the the boys turned into offenders themselves. Mm. I was on an Oprah show with one of the first ones to ever come forward, a man named Shane Earl. I'll never forget chatting with Shane in the in the green room when Shane just said, you know, he said, Gary, you know, when you're talking about therapists or counselors, bear in mind this man tucked me into bed at night and said my bedtime prayers with me. I've never forgotten. I thought, boy, did that ever say it all. But there was a there was a culture of abuse that was so serious that the civil authorities sadly didn't deal with it. Child protection didn't help. The police didn't help. This guy had to go out a window, try to kill himself, and eventually a crusading journalist uh, wrote a story about it that got published. They thought the newspaper would be driven out of business the next day, but instead all kinds of people came forward. But this was the broader community in its own way had not helped. And so these orphans were on their own. We're talking with Gary Schoner, director of consultation and training at uh, the service that he founded, the walk-in counseling center uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, Have you in all of your work seen any research that could give you any kind of accurate percentage of Catholic priests, because we always talk about thousands of priests in toto, but nothing compares with the total number of priests. If there is one, of course, obviously, it's inexcusable. But are we talking about literally uh, a, a scandalous percentage of the Roman Catholic priests of the world? I don't think we know that, and I don't think there's any really good data. The, self, the report data that John Jay Institute of Law got in their study, and the, all of these things are very focused on, first of all, what's that got, actually gotten reported to a diocese or archdiocese, what's been recorded and what's passed on. We know that's a subset of the cases, but the Catholic Church is huge worldwide and has tons and tons of priests. Remember, this includes also seminarians and a variety of, of people. This isn't just uh, this isn't just people that have been priests for twenty years. This is all kinds of stuff. Um, so, um, the the bottom line is we don't know, and we don't know how the percentages would uh, compare with other churches and denominations, such as Lutheran. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, we know that this occurs everywhere. 
the the numbers are harder to know. One of the things we do know in the Roman Catholic faith is all of the things being equal, I do believe that the Roman Catholic priest in general has a higher level of trust that's accorded him by congregants. And the reality is that uh, making a charge against a priest is believed to be a sin, might end you up in hell. Um, so the obstacles are far greater. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, uh, priests get to do things that some other clergy don't get to do. For example, um, uh, priests at times can take take kids on unescorted trips, even out of town. There are varieties of levels of trust here which are greater than you typically find with, say, Protestant clergy or Jewish clergy or uh, Muslim clergy. So it's it it, but believe me, this is not just a Catholic problem. The Catholic Church is just bigger and therefore has a bigger problem, and it has some unique and specific issues, but believe me, it's not just limited to them, and uh, they're not the only offending religion. And how, how sad that phrase is. You wrote uh, many times about activities behind the pine curtain. What did that mean? Well, basically, activities in the confessional or behind the confessional, behind the situation where um, these relationships are highly private. I mean, there's a even a priest-penitent privilege, which uh, some people believe prevents them from reporting things they hear or learn of. Kid comes into confession and says, this is going on. Um, theoretically, that's not supposed to be shared with anybody but God. Um, so there are lots of obstacles, even if someone can screw up the courage to take a chance on making a complaint. Uh, and then the issue of what happens next is another challenge. What happens next? Well, the first question is, is there an investigation? If so, is it competently done? How far does it reach? Is there an effort to find other victims or simply to investigate the claims made by the one? Um, one of the things I learned early in that uh, when we went to evaluate clergy, we often were not getting uh, the results of an investigation. All we were getting was the complaints made by a given kid or a given adult um, and had no idea if there was more to it. Um, and sometimes we were getting a sanitized version of that sometimes not on purpose. I mean, the classic thing is that, to be very honest, um, uh, bishops and archbishops and even vicar generals are not necessarily the best people to investigate such a case. They don't like talking about sex in general. And I've had people come to me and I said, well, what did the guy do? He said, sex. I said, well, that, that covers a broad range of territory. You want to narrow it a little bit here and tell me exactly what he did? Well, I don't actually know. Uh, and it turned out that nobody asked the guy for specifics and nobody pushed the victim for specifics. There wasn't a lot of information available. This, this what, is, uh, back in the, no, go ahead, please. Oh, Gary. Go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, well, back in the 1980s, uh, uh, the late Bishop uh, 
John Roach in Minneapolis, who's been pilloried many times, but I can tell you, I think was greatly personally concerned about these issues. Um, even though, he, you know, at times he was part of cover-ups, I'm sure. But one time he came to me, he said, Gary, he said, look, um, we're sending people off to these evaluation centers. They're spending a lot of money. He said, I'll spend any amount of money if we're getting good work, but they're coming back saying that they're okay to return to priesthood or some vague thing about supervision. He said, what's going wrong here? We're getting bad advice. We have to go to professionals like yourself for advice, but how do we get better advice? And he said, how can you tell? I said, well, we could pick 10 cases. Have you get releases from the priests so that I can interview everybody that's worked with them, everybody that's evaluated them, and I can gain access to all the files and all the materials and try to re, re, you know, re, recheck everything and see what we've got. The most common problem I found, um, and by the way, many times the people evaluating these people weren't Catholic, they weren't connected with the church. Some were, and some made a living off of it, but and what I found was a couple of things. One was, first of all, many of our tools are not really good in the area of human sexuality to start with. So even the best professional doesn't have a good set of tools. We depend an awful lot on reports of behavior. Number two, what I found was that there had rarely been a real investigation. So sometimes there was a huge cesspool of information out there, but nobody knew it. If you hadn't found it out, you thought you were dealing with somebody who could tell a pretty convincing story about having had an unusual incident where he was drunk and kind of lost control and deeply regrets it. It's a whole different story if that's been going on for 10 years. The, the third thing was that when people got finished, if the priest had been cooperative and talked and seemed to be concerned and feel badly and guilty and stuff, and prayed about it and so forth, they would send the person back with advice that you needed to be under supervision. Well, you can't supervise a priest in his own parish. There's no such thing. Bishop doesn't supervise. Vicar general doesn't supervise. That, that's impossible. As the church is set up, there is nobody that can supervise. So, And then we would find out that there was nobody assigned to do it even then, meaning that it wasn't like there was a committee of lay people or others holding the person accountable, no such thing. So essentially the person went back unsupervised. Now I said, what that should mean is they shouldn't go back. If you feel they need supervision, then they can't go back. And um, I was part of, I, I evaluated a number of the Boston victims as part of one of the big series of lawsuits and settlements. And um, um, I, I followed then the back and forth that happened between the Institute of Living that evaluated a lot of the priests and the archdiocese, each was blaming the other. But the bottom line was that they were sending people back who shouldn't have gone back into the priesthood, and they weren't saying that clearly, and the archdiocese wasn't asking for it. So it was like a don't ask, don't tell. And, you know, my basic feeling was <laughs> straight out of Jewel, <laughs> Julius Caesar, or, uh, Stayed out of Romeo and Juliet, the plague on both your houses. But Gary, um, you're a licensed psychologist, 
And I'm, I'm obligated to ask you because if, if there's any subject in any faith of the world that makes its participants more uncomfortable than this, the members of the church find this to be among the most heinous things that anyone can do, much less a person in power like a priest. But is there something that you found in your research that causes you to feel that there's something... Now, let's forget the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Jews for a while. Let's talk about Roman Catholics because that's the story of the day as a result of Pennsylvania and Boston before that and all of those before that. Is there something about the structure of the church as it is now, other than the cloak of silence, that attracts perverts? Um, yes and no. Uh, first of all, some people are attracted to priesthood because it, it's an honorable profession. It gives you safety status in the community. It, it gives you some of these things. And for some families, it's, it, it's an immense source of pride that the, their, one of their kids has become a priest. Um, interestingly enough, we had a couple of cases where we have two priests in the family, and one of them was a pedophile and needed to get out of the church, didn't want to do it while his parents were still alive, sort of didn't want to give up his vows uh, and, and be laicized because it would be embarrassing to them. I mean, but it got a sense of that. that. That was one piece. Secondly, there are people that are struggling with sexual impulses that are troubled and confused about them who believe that an ascetic life the life of a priest with prayer and surrounded by all the good stuff that they'll get past it or get over it. So there are people troubled about their feelings that seek a cure. Um, what there are obviously people that uh, upon early in their career learning of this about themselves and having access to children who basically like to be in that role because they're, they're able to get access and, and to get away with a lot of stuff. So there, there's that too. Um, there are people that are poorly um, adjusted at times who seek the structure of the church. And I would point you to um, cases like Father John Porter in Massachusetts. People have forgotten. He not just had sex with little boys, but also little girls eventually got laicized years later. And when he was sent to treatment at Jemez Springs, New Mexico, uh, to the servants of Paraclete, he sexually abused people there too. They had victims in a bunch of states. He ended up in St. Paul, Minnesota. He got laicized, was out in the community, and um, got married. He later sexually abused the babysitter for one of his kids, who was an adolescent girl. I... I certainly don't know professionally anything about his actual records or diagnosis, but I would say seeing him on TV multiple times, the man looked pretty troubled to me. And the type of sexuality he engaged in is what we call polymorphous perverse, meaning all kinds of ages and genders. Um, he was 
did he become troubled when once he became a priest or did he start that way? I don't know. But I certainly have seen people that were highly troubled individuals. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a case here. Uh, we had we had a mysterious murder that occurred in Hudson, Wisconsin, which didn't appear to have a motive, but a funeral director and, a, and an intern working with him were shot to death in broad daylight with no apparent motive, no robbery or anything. But later emerged that he had told several people he was going to confront their parish priest about a history of sexual abuse of adolescents. And one of the parishioners warned him that maybe he should be careful because the priest carried guns. And it turned out that the priest, even through seminary, was packing uh, a weapon under his clothing. Incredible. And some of the other students knew that. He also had an alcohol problem. Now, I would tell you, years ago, that guy would never have become a priest. But the numbers of people in seminaries has thinned out greatly. And I can tell you, some people in the church said, you know, there's no way that guy should have ever gotten through seminary, given what um, and how troubling some of his conduct was. But then he, I would say he was uh, pretty well flipped out. And but, it but these people, these people don't develop into uh, pedophiles after their holy orders, uh, do they? Uh, has... I, I I don't think for the most part that they do. There are instances where they do, where um, where they get into it through another priest. Um, there are certainly instances of that, like the Mount Cashel case, where it was clear that a handful of fairly perverted individuals turned the entire uh, order into into big time trouble. But um, I think that the the many times, remember, when you talk about becoming a priest, especially in the old days, you're talking about a commitment was made sometimes before the person had ever been out on a date. Even the concept of celibacy is an interesting one if you've never had sex to start with and actually don't know what it is you're talking about. Um, there's a, a Jim, the late Jim Seip, who's just died, uh, wrote a book called uh, A Secret World, The Search for Celibacy, which I highly recommend. It's an old book, but it's a, it's a, it's a very good look at sexuality and the priesthood and a variety of issues. Give us the name um, of the book and the author again, please. It, it's James Sipe, S-I-P-E, and it's A Secret World, The Search for Celibacy. And some say that it is that unique factor that exists almost exclusively uh, on a worldwide basis within the structure of the Roman Catholic Church uh, that has created most of the problems. Do you agree? I think it's played a role. I don't think it's created all the problems, I think. However, in fact, when you look at it, universal celibacy, of course, has nothing to do with traditional Christianity. It came into being about 800 years ago, around, around the time that women's property rights and the rights of children to inherit property were beginning to be an, known and, and thought in Europe. And so there was a concern of about inheriting uh, church property if the priest was married. That's when the universal celibacy began to evolve. The concept of celibacy can be found in lots of faith groups, but it, it you're right, it's... It, 
the universal celibacy as Roman Catholic. Interesting enough, if you're a Lutheran minister or a minister from another type of Catholicism and become Catholic, you can become a priest and do not have to be celibate. Yes. Excuse me, I got something in my throat. Uh, So the celibacy is not required of the people who have uh, come from another faith group. Uh, listen, if you want to, if you want to, uh, Gary, look, this is a a very informal discussion show. So if you'd like to get a drink of water or something like that, I just, I just, I just did. <laughs> okay, that's terrific. I just wanted right. to tell everybody at this point uh, that if you just tuned in for the first time to Star Worldwide Networks, and you're saying, "Wait a minute, I'm getting whiplash uh, listening to this." And and I'm I'm a faithful Catholic, and I think some of this is is drummed up as as anti-Catholic propaganda, uh, and one still hears that, but not quite as often, because of the fact that the victims uh, of the pedophilia and of the other sex crimes that priests have been accused of and found guilty of. Uh, have been established with a lot of research that was only available uh, recently in the world of journalism and investigative reporting. Uh, One of the things that is often confused, and I'd like you to clarify this right now, Gary, if you will, as a psychologist, please explain to our audience the difference between homosexuality and pedophilia. Well, homosexuality simply means uh, a sexual and or affectional preference for people of the same gender as yourself, you know, male, male, female, female. Uh, It doesn't have anything to do with the age of the person with whom you have sexual contact. Uh, The pedophilia means sexual contact with someone who's legally a minor. Uh, There's been a debate because there's a subset within that of that some people call a febophilia, uh, which are where it's a it's a, a uh, um, an adolescent who's late teens, so they're they're a little more similar to an uh, an adult as opposed to someone who's prepubescent, meaning they haven't been through puberty, so they're they're really a child. Um, so there's there's some debate about those things, but. They have nothing to do with homosexuality. I would emphasize there are tons and tons of priest cases involving girls, contrary to what people like to believe. And even with Father Porter, people recall that as a male pedophilia. Forget the fact there were girls involved. And I might add something else here. Um, If supposedly the guy's only molesting boys, imagine how hard it is for a girl to come forward. What does that say about you? It's sort of doubly bad. He interested in boys, and then you—you're one of them. The victimization uh, but, goes beyond anything I can possibly conceive, uh, and apparently, uh, without help, uh, without therapy, uh, it can last a lifetime. Isn't that correct? Oh well, if you live to grow old, uh, yes. Uh, we have a certain number of people who kill themselves, including kids. I testified in a case in Kansas where 
a, a young Catholic boy who seemed to be doing very well in school and otherwise happy blew his brains out with a shotgun in his parents' bedroom. And then um, nobody could ever understand it. It was a terrible thing to have happen. And later on, someone came forward who had actually seen this person being abused by a priest and himself had been abused by the priest, but there was actually a witness. And all of a sudden, this out-of-the-blue terrible event seemed to have a possible cause. Um, so it's a terrible tragedy uh, all around. Many of the and, Catholics uh, that I know, Gary, uh, many of the Catholics that I personally know, including some in the clergy, uh, have categorized the cover-up as a sin upon sin, uh, that it in fact allowed many of the assaults of children, of adolescents, boys, women, by the clergy, by Catholic priests, to continue and sometimes geographically, geographically just simply to change arenas because of the fact that the priest was transferred to another diocese, uh, another area of the country altogether. The cover-up by the church has been a horrendous kind of responsibility. Well, I would agree. The, 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 the betrayal by the institution is always worse than the betrayal by that individual that you trusted. In the end, um, when finally someone comes forward and nothing is done, or when you learn that you're not the first, there were a bunch of others and that the person shouldn't have been there, but was, uh, it's, it's a horrific uh, experience. There are, there's a case in the uh, I think it was Missouri where a deal was cut with a bunch of victims and they were paid a settlement and they, they chose to pick, to have a lower settlement with the promise that the church would change all those procedures and this would never happen again. And then it emerged that another case had come up and they had in fact covered it up. And there was actually a lawsuit that was a breach of contract that the victim saying, Hey, we agreed to this because you said you'd change, and you couldn't even change for for two years. And uh, so these these are um, these are serious offenses when you don't get on top of this and don't fix it. The last Sunday, and last Sunday's paper, uh, the Arizona Republic, the front page primary editorial in the viewpoints section was entitled simply Sacrilege. And the subtitle, the subheading, says Pope Francis himself covered for sexual abuse. Pope Francis is probably as popular a prelate as any I've ever known in my lifetime, perhaps with the exception of John the Twenty-Third during Vatican I, uh, Vatican II. Uh, and um, and yet there are there are these accusations that now don't just stop at the bishops' offices in various dioceses around the world. Some of them extend to the Vatican. Where does a victim go if he's battling well, that still- kind of power? Right. The, the, the two prior popes both had very bad track records 
and were personally involved. And I saw personal correspondence where, for example, priests asked to be laicized because they were, you know, out of control pedophiles. And they were, there was a long period of time where they weren't laicizing anybody, even when they were begging for it. We know that uh, the, uh, the head of the Legionnaires of Christ, a major fundraising and evangelical group worldwide, uh, had been abusing boys on a number of continents and had been going on for decades. That was, had been covered up for years. And there were, there were quite a few cases. The other thing was, I think, in Boston, here you've got a high-visibility case. You've got Cardinal Law, who um, you know, originally claimed that the church didn't know much about this stuff. He testified under oath that, um, that um, it wasn't until the Gilbert, Father Gilbert Galfa case in Lafayette, Louisiana in 1984 that the church really started facing this stuff. Uh, however, 1985, there was a, at that point, a secret report to the bishops of the United States talking about the seriousness of this problem and the fact that it wasn't going to get covered up anymore by civil authorities. So that was happening. Well, anyway, I was involved in some cases in Mississippi, and uh, a, a person in the community of some prominence had discovered that all three of his sons had been sexually abused by a priest. And so he came forward and uh, the vicar general, who's the man who deals with the the priesthood and and carries out a lot of administrative functions and handles complaints against priests, the vicar general promised they'd deal with it. Turned out they just moved the guy and they hid it. Uh, I said, well, do you remember his name? He said, yep, uh, it was Law. He said, you know, his uh. first name. It was Cardinal, uh, the man who eventually became Cardinal Law. So back in the mid-60s, in his very first administrative post, he was covering up cases. So I think his statements in Boston were grossly disingenuous, to say the least. And that was, that was the uh, topic uh, of the, in the, the, the plot line of the award-winning movie Spotlight. Oh, yeah. So, and, and after that, of course, after that period, um, he got moved to a preferred position in the Vatican. I mean, uh, uh, the ironic thing, there was no way in which he was in any way uh, held accountable. He basically was moved to a higher position, in this case in Rome, got a, a, a peach of a job. In um, politics, you know, that, though, that Gary, was, in politics, we vote people out of office when they're guilty of that kind of corruption, far less, in fact, on a level of seriousness than the corruption of children. But we can't yeah. vote. We can't vote a priest out of a parish. We certainly can't vote a bishop out of a diocese. And we can't do much about a papacy so how can the church survive any more of these stories? Well, it's, it, and I think it's not surviving very well. The reality is that the, pro, the church, in terms of its finances and in terms of the number of active members and, and what's coming in in the, in the, um, in, in the collections on Sunday, uh, uh, have all dropped. And I think that, it's also very difficult to find people that want to be priests under these circumstances because it's it's something that has a stain on it now. 
Listen, I know a lot of people who find it difficult to say I'm Catholic. Uh huh. Well, my my sense with the Catholic friends is that for many of them, um, it, it's they may still even attend services and they still may do uh, go to confession. They still may do some of those things. But if you're talking about truly believing that the church itself, the organized church, is a good thing, that's long gone. Can, can they ever, Gary, that, can they ever get it back? I was talking uh, with the survival of the church, and there's well over a billion Catholics in the world. Uh, so outside of numbers and outside of the economy of the church, uh, because it can take a pretty serious blow economically and still have more than anybody else in Christianity. Uh, what is it that can happen? What could possibly be available to to Catholic parishioners who want to remain in the church because of their faith? What can happen to solve the problem? Well, there there obviously needs to be huge changes, and I, I, you know the irony of the whole thing is that the conservative wing in the church had been very much tied to the sex abuse. Now with the current Pope in trouble, who does not, was not from that wing, uh, it gets much uglier because uh, he was thought to be a, a you know, uh, someone that would be a remedy for some of that. And, and I think he said some of the right things, but the reality is that he too has some unfortunate uh, history of not taking action, not being aggressive enough. I, I, I don't know that the church hierarchy would, would support um, really taking this on. Uh, and there are a couple of, couple of things that people need to know, though. First of all, although there is church authority that goes right to the top, that plays a role in things, and I can tell you that um, there are cases that the Vatican's actually directly involved with. I've seen things on Vatican stationery. I can tell you I've seen memos back and forth. But fundamentally, what people don't realize is the National Organization of Roman Catholic Bishops is a voluntary organization. It has no power over them. So when you do the John Jay studies and you suggest changes and you suggest policy and stuff, that has absolutely no input or power to an, a diocese or archdiocese. It's advisory only. So in the end, the local priest is still in charge, has rights, can take on the Vatican, um, uh, can challenge bishops, um, and it it's not as though uh, it's an easy thing to undo. We had a case here with Archbishop Roach got a report back on a priest. He said, there's no way that guy's going back in the pulpit. I don't care what the psychologist says. He said, the man's a predator. And he was right. Um, and the guy actually brought charges against the archbishop with the Vatican. And to his credit, the archbishop just plain stood up and said, there's no way I'm alive. Well, unfortunately, the archbishop eventually died. New, we got a new bishop in, St. Paul, and this same guy went back got back in, sexually abused somebody else within a year, 
and ended up on, you know, up on charges again, criminal and civil. Um, but, you know, you look at it and realize that um, it's not easy in a situation where the priest has that much power to get change because you've got lots of individuals out there. You also have bishops, and you've had that in your part of the country where the bishop was engaged in misconduct. And it may have been a different type than the priest, but wasn't so interested in getting on top of the priest cases. You have a bishop having extramarital or having affairs with women congregants or visees or counselees and having sex in that, not so likely to bring the charge against the parish priest who's doing the same thing with maybe some adolescent girls in his parish or adolescent boys. So, Gary, as an authority in the field of ethics, that really is one of your specialties. Are you suggesting then that there is no solution within the Roman Catholic Church? There isn't a single solution, but the main the solution that's being used now and needs to continue to be used is people need to come forward and need to stand up and hold the church accountable, whether through speaking out or through uh, personal actions, including the letter to the bishop, the decision to not participate. You can remain a Christian, you can pray, you can do all those things, but not support a local church. All of those things are individual acts that can make a difference. <laughs> it's um, it's a big, big, powerful entity, and it's been the way it is for a long, long while. A change is not going to come easily. Uh, the other piece, obviously, is uh, there would be a huge difference if women were able to play more of a role in the church. Um, in fact, in some places, they they've had women run the office of that takes the complaints against the priest because people are more willing to talk with them. Um, there are a lot of things like that that might make a difference. Wouldn't fix the everything, but might make a difference. Um, and I think that's... Uh, the answer, though, is in lots of things needing to change. And it may be that the church has gone beyond that point and is just simply destined to limp along. That's wow, you know when you think when you think of when you think of something though, Gary, that is as um, as massive, as powerful, as historically powerful as the Roman Catholic Church, uh, then one wonders if limping is even something that most of us as Catholics can conceive. I wish that I was leaving the audience with a more positive direction. Is it a matter of a female clergy? Is it a matter of a married clergy? Is it a matter of all of us standing up and saying, I'm not gonna take this anymore. Any of us, we are the church. Thank you for being with us on The God Show.